So when was the last time you said, wow, that will be a game changer? Was it? Was it really as big as a deal as you thought it would be, believed it would be? When was the last time you said, oh my goodness, if only this could happen, that would be a game changer? Some of us have been disappointed so many times, we've, we've even given up believing in game changers. We used to believe, but it's either never happened or worse yet, we got the game changer we wished for, and game changer it was, <sighs> took us downhill, right? And even worse, some of us are right now sitting here setting ourselves up for another fall because we can't stop believing it might happen. And we're going to go through the same cycle again. But game changers, real, true game changers do happen. They do. I've had the wonderful privilege of being married into a medical family. <clears throat> My wife is a nurse and has been a medical program lead. Her father was a physician and a physician lead. And I was thinking this week about some of the medical treatment advances that I've heard them talk about over the years that were, that were literal game changers in their lifetime that many of us today just, well, we just take for granted. And so this week I decided to use this as an opportunity to connect with my father-in-law. And so I gave him a call and, uh, and asked him to reminisce about some of the things, the, the game-changing things that he had witnessed in his years of practicing medicine. Not just sort of one little step forward, but, but true game changers. And the first thing he said was, whoa, you know, when I started practicing medicine and had patients who were immigrants from Europe, as some of your parents maybe or grandparents were, and, and experienced the war years there, he said, when they came into my office and, and I had to give them the diagnosis of pneumonia, he said, I can still see the panicked look on their eyes and feel the shock they had. You see, they had lived in the years when the course of pneumonia back around the days of the war were, uh, was basically two weeks of getting sick, two weeks of being sick, really sick, and then two weeks of iffy. Are we going to die? Are we going to live? But with antibiotics, in those days it was just penicillin. Treatment, treating pneumonia was... It became almost like treating a cold. In North America, antibiotics decreased the death rate from pneumonia by 40% in one decade. A total game changer. I've had pneumonia. LaDonna didn't call the kids, come home just in case. Nobody held a 24-hour prayer vigil for me. Maybe there's more reason. No, anyway. <laughs> antibiotics were a game changer. And we just, well, we just presume, and, and we, we presume them on so much, we, we overuse them, right? We talked about uh, LaDonna's grandmother, her mother's mother, who died of what was then called malignant hypertension. Just two or three years before the first antihypertensive drugs came on the scene that, that most likely would have saved her life. LaDonna loves talking about the privilege of working in cancer care in, the, in a time in history when many cancer diagnoses are no longer the death sentences they once were. And especially the game-changing role of, of what's called target the ter therapy or, or biologicals, for example, monoclonal antibodies. She remembers the, the, the this is too good to be true feeling when they first came out and then, and then seeing 
the unbelievable and almost immediate and lasting effects. Game changers. That some of us here today simply take for granted or about which we might still today be saying, well, it might, it might have worked for someone, but it won't work for me. And that is why, at least in a, in a sort of kind of kind of way, we do what some church traditions over the years have done for centuries, acknowledge this season that is called Advent. Advent is simply a, a word from a, from a Latin word that means coming in or arriving, entering our awareness or experience of, uh, of something special, specifically in this season, the entering into creation of the Creator Himself. And just like God sent John the Baptist before Jesus to, well, prepare the way, Advent honors that pattern by saying, you know, to celebrate it well, it's, it's worthwhile to set some time to focus, to, to reorient our minds at the underneath level so that we can shape our hearts to be in line with the incredible, game-changing reality of this event called Christmas. And what is Christmas? Well, paraphrasing what we've seen in this letter of Paul to the church in the city of Philippi that we've been studying this fall, what Christmas is, not just what it represents, what it is, literally, historically, it's the time and space event in which the unlimited God limited himself in order to draw us into his unlimited life and unending love. Folks, that, that is a game changer. It's the mother of all game changers. That is the significance, the message, the meaning of Christmas that we're going to be exploring in our Sunday teaching this month. And the core passage, of course, we've already looked at this from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, which you have to memorize this Christmas if you want to do Advent well this year, you've got to memorize Philippians 2, at least verses 5 to 11, and maybe verses 1 to 11. Would you do that? Would you challenge yourself to do that? Would you maybe even partner up with somebody and say, hey, let's challenge it. Let's challenge us together to do that. About Jesus, who it says, did not consider equality with the, un the, the unlimited God to be something to cl be clung to and hung on to. But he emptied himself. He limited himself to our sphere becoming like us, a servant to us, obedient to death for us. And God exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, a name for us that he has also given us. The unlimited God limited himself so that he could draw us into his unlimited life and unending love. And it just so happens, as David Acknowledged a little earlier that as Paul wraps up the book of Philippians, he talks about some of the ideas that we still often associate with Christmas. Stuff like joy, peace, and the spirit of giving. Three of the big ones, three of the qualities of that unlimited life and love that God came to us at Christmas, that, that came to us at Christmas in Jesus, and that in Jesus the unlimited God invites us to live in, to know at an experience level. And so for, for this Advent season, we'll simply be completing our study of the book of Philippians, looking at those themes as Paul describes them as he moves forward uh, toward the end of the book. Next week, we're going to start looking at the themes of joy and in peace and, and Christmas spirit of giving. But before he brings up those themes, 
Paul walks us through the thinking, the, the mindset and the hard set, the inner orientation that sets us up to see and experience those things that we want to experience, to set us up to live in the game-changing reality that we call Christmas. So turn in your Bible to uh, the book of Philippians chapter 3, and if you have a, uh, a Bible app, it's probably easiest to look in there. And if not, if you don't, just take your smartphone and download a Bible app from bibleapp.com app, and turn to the, the New Testament letter by Paul, sort of towards, almost towards the end of the book, called Philippians, to the, to, to the, the church that he had started in the city of Philippi. As you're turning... Let's ponder another question briefly. What is it that limits us most? It's our thinking, isn't it? It's our thinking that limits us most. And, and so we like to talk about things like positive thinking, about having an abundance mindset and not a scarcity mindset. And at the same time, we have this, this fear, cynicism, that game-changing thinking is just a mental game that we play with ourselves. But what if... What if the unlimited God, the all-powerful, the all-knowing God who created it all chose to limit himself to actually enter our experience as one of us, not, be, not become not himself, but to become one of us, to actually enter our experience. That's, that's why it's so powerful that this idea of incarnation, of the enfleshment of God, he became a created one. How would we think what difference was, would it made here if we really believed that the unlimited God limited himself so to draw us into his unlimited life and unending love? Would you think through that as we read this passage? We're going to put that, that picture back on the screen. And what I'm going to ask you to do is as we read this passage in Philippians, just think in your mind and maybe jot down and, and uh, somewhere some ideas that Paul is telling us here as to what it means to think in light of the Christmas truth. Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to begin back in verse uh, 7 of chapter 3. We covered some of this last week, but we're going to go all the way to chapter 4, four verse 1 as we read. Would you follow along as I read and, and think on another track in your mind about those questions? Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more... I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing passing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And all of us who are mature will take such a view of things. And if on some point we might think differently, that too God will make clear to you. 
Only let us live up to what we have already attained. And so join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. Because their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. So what does this tell us about how I can allow the truth of Christmas to be a game changer in my life, in my thinking? In my thinking that's underneath my thinking, that's behind my thoughts? My mindset, which determines my heart set. By the way, little test here. What is the word that describes that underneath level of our thinking? I heard it here somewhere. Come on, you've got it. Franeo, right? Franeo is the word Paul uses, which isn't the regular word for thinking and thoughts. It's a, it's a word that, that describes the, 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 the thinking patterns and structures that filter what we see, that determine how we're going to think about what we see. Every once in a while I hear somebody who, who, who's made a dumb decision or uh, thinks something totally off the wall about somebody and they'll say to me, well, what was I supposed to think? Well, I can think of any number of things they could have thought, but they couldn't because of their franel, the filter through which they were looking, the structure that channels their thinking. Twice in our passage, that word is used in chapter 2, verse 15, all of us then who are mature must take such a view of things. The... the um, English Standard Version, which some of you use, say, should think this way. I love the way the New English Translation translates it. It says, should embrace, embrace this point of view, this perspective. Have this kind of game-changing outlook on everything. The other verse that it's used is when it talks about people who don't. Their mind, their franeo, is set on earthly things. Their mindset, what they are looking for, what they're aiming at, what they're desiring, is all earthbound stuff. You see, our natural franeo, our, our natural filter, our mindset, what channels our thinking, is very me-referenced, right? We're going to see more about that a little, bit, a little bit. But Christmas, and what it ushers in and opens the possibility for is, is a game-changing kind of franeo, a game-changing way of looking and seeing all of life. Several ways Paul talks about. Number one, when I have that kind of mindset, I will embrace the goal for which Jesus is embracing me and drawing me into in and through everything. 
I'll never get very far, certainly not in, into unlimited thinking, if I'm working at, at cross purposes with God. Last year, just around this time, we just finishing up in the book of Jonah, who discovered that. Paul himself, when he was very religiously pursuing God and confronting Jesus and working against the cross, he was working at cross purposes with the cross of Jesus, right? What did Jesus say to him when he met him? He says, Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the way God is trying to channel you and channel life. So what is the goal that God has for me? Well, what does our text say that goal is? What is one's God's, goal, God's one goal for me? His primary calling for me. He states it three times. Number one, verse 11. Somehow, and so, he said, in this way, somehow attaining to the goal, which is the resurrection from the dead. Which, think of our picture. The unlimited God lived himself, what? To draw us into his unlimited life and unending love. That's the goal. To achieve that. Verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to be able to take hold of that for which Jesus took hold of me, which is attaining resurrection. And it's verse 21, he says it just very crystal clear. Everything is pointing toward verse 21. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will become like his glorious body what is the goal God has for us well it's you know so fashionable to believe that God has this purpose for each of us a, a, a unique purpose for each of us you know we like that kind of thinking we want to discover and pursue God's unique purpose for just me well it's true that God that, that Jesus has an individual interest in us. And it's also true that he wants to use us uniquely for his purpose, but we spend way too much time focusing on that because that is mostly a sign of our me-referenceness, right? The purpose God is most concerned about is to provide a way for us to overcome our downward trajectory that we took as a human race by walking away from Him and the inner turmoil we cause ourselves by turning our backs on Him, the limitedness we experience by not opening ourselves up to Him. And His concern is not just about providing for us a way that we could be with Him sometime in the future. His purpose is that we will become, in our thinking, our act, acting, we will become like Jesus, the one he has sent to be the new creation, the new Adam, thinking and acting and becoming more like Jesus. That, that's the goal. That's what Paul is embracing. That was the passion that, that, that drove Paul to give himself to, to these people and start these churches and, and work with people toward Jesus. He passionately tries to help us all visualize. Think of Romans chapter 8. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, which is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. 
Galatians chapter 4, 19, you can't get any more passionate than this. Oh, my dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again and again. They will continue until Christ is fully formed, fully developed in you. But sometimes, sometimes it feels as if to embrace that goal is just to invite a whole lot of guilt, to be drawn into a whole lot of rationalizing denying, pretending, because we can never measure up unless there's more to it than just that. Because no matter how much we try, we will never be in our hearts that we, who we know God expects us to be. And so as soon as Paul puts this goal on the table, he, he gives us this, this caveat, this caution. Not that I've already attained it. Not that I've already arrived at my goal, but I keep pressing on. I don't know about you, but for me, the fact that I can never seem to arrive at the goal and have plenty of reminders of that and plenty of people who would like to remind me of that more, it's sometimes very discouraging. But that's where this game-changing thinking, this phoneo starts. That's the beginning point for mature people. And then he goes on to say, well, if at some point you think differently than this, in other words, not in light of this goal, that too, God will make clear to you. And how does God make, clear, make it clear to us? Does he just sort of tell us in our minds, oh, no, that's okay, you can go that way? Well, I, I'm not saying he can't do that, but that's not how he usually does it. How does he usually do it? Well, I encountered a situation that's weak in which God made this whole thing clear to me. I had an appointment in this week in the middle of the day, some distance away, and I got there in plenty of time, but because it was in the middle of the day and uh, my head was still in work, you know, and, and, and I used my driving time for thinking about, thinking about big things, not little things like those white signs on the side of the road. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I'm not in a chill frame of mind. But I made it without failing, without falling into one of those tax grab traps this time. I, I turned my signal light to, to turn right. <laughs> I did. I turned my signal light to turn right into this uh, lane which led to the office I was going. And as I get close, um, right coming into this lane is this big Alberta truck driven by an Alberta, I'm the only one on the road driver, and, and, and he wanted to turn left. And, okay, he, he stopped in the middle of the entry, blocking the entire road so nobody could get in, like me, waiting for these cars to come. To, but he was going to turn left, so cars were coming. He had to wait. It's okay, but the cars were backing up behind me, and... But I want to like, be like Jesus, and so I don't show my frustration very much. I, 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 I didn't even give him a dirty look. I, I had, a, I, I had a, a, a studiously neutral expression on my face. I held firmly to the steering wheel and just waited patiently. And, <laughs> and uh, it's tough to be like Jesus, but I did. Even if he wasn't. Several hours later, I came out and wanted to turn left. And, and, and there's a car approaching who wanted to turn right. And I looked right and saw cars were coming. And so I had to sit there and wait. And when it was clear to the 
To the right, I look left again, and that car's still sitting there waiting, and I realized <laughs> I'm in the middle of the road. He can't do anything. Exactly the same place the guy was sitting when I came in. I thought I'd been so magnanimous and patient with a very thoughtless driver. I know I'm not perfect, but I'd never do that. But I did. You see, this verse is not saying God will tell you. It's saying God will bring these situations into, into your life where he's saying, you're not different, really. Because our for now is so me-centered. I'm not yet totally acting, thinking, becoming like Jesus. And sometimes it almost drives us to, into giving up. And yet Paul says, I press on. How does he do that? Well, he tells us that too. He says, you can do that when you remember and reflect on how much has already changed. How much has already been accomplished in getting to the goal. Only let us live up, he says, to what we have already attained. Not achieved. Received. Because Jesus came, he died, and he rose again. And what does that mean? It means that through his limiting himself for me, through his dying for me, I already have a status in God's eyes of completion, a legal status it's called justification. We've talked about that. There's, there's nothing that I do or don't do that changes that. I have the status of being justified, and it means, as we saw from chapter 1, verse 1, that I am a saint in God's eyes which means that I am not a prisoner of my past. Because of the freedom of forgiveness, I do not have to prove anything. I do not have to make up for anything. And forgiveness is complete. The slate is wiped clean, as it says in 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, he's just, he will forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Well, at least partially, so I do not have to allow any of that stuff to keep me from pressing on toward the goal into which he has called me. I do not have to be a prisoner of my past. One of the ways we limit ourselves at this fronteo level of our thinking is with rationalizations. Well, nobody's perfect. God understands. You know how limiting that is? It keeps us from pressing on. Oh, here's one. Here's one that I, uh, I hope none of us here ever says. Well, I know I'm no saint, but hold it right there. Yes, you are. Fronao that, man. And live into it. God understands, but God has provided. He calls us higher than that. He has given us a status higher than that. You are a saint. Just live up to what you have already attained. And in Jesus, you can. Can you accept that today? Can you truly receive it so that it will change the way you see the things that you said, I can't, or the things that you say, oh, well, in Jesus, you can. 
But there's another way we allow ourselves to be imprisoned by the past. It's by holding up the successes of our past. Paul had addressed that too, right? Whatever things were gained to me, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Skubala. Garbage. Why? Because last week's win, today, if you watch NFL football, some point, some coach is going to get on there and say, yeah, well, you know, we made sure our guys... How, how did you get ready for this week? Well, we made sure our guys realized that last week's win makes no difference in today's game. Resting on those successes sometimes blinds us to seeing how we still need to grow. We limit ourselves by too much focus on the past. The past is the past. Is past. Jesus is still here in the present. He's still saying, hey, come, follow me. I've got a goal for you. But we're not only prisoners of our past. Many of us, many of us are prisoners of our present You know, the number one way in a me-centered world that we make ourselves prisoners of our present, it's by saying, well, this is who I am. Get used to it, right? We even say, well, God made me this way. He must be okay with it. Friends, the message that Jesus wants you to hear this morning is, Not, yeah, just accept who you are and make the world accept who you are. He wants to gently say to you, do you realize that by saying that, you are allowing yourself to be a prisoner of the now? A prisoner of the moment, a prisoner of the present. God's call for me is not to be who I am because in Jesus, who I am is not really who I am. Can you hear that? Can you believe that? Can you accept that, folks, is a game changer? When I get that, I will give all I am and have to get there, to become like Jesus. Paul gets very grieved when he sees people imprisoning themselves to the present. He actually describes being imprisoned by the present in in verses 18 and 19 when he says, For as I have often told you before and now tell you again with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. In other words, just not simply believing the work of Christ on the cross was the game changer for them. They're just living in the now. How are they living in the now? Their God is their belly. In other words, they simply go by their feelings, their gut feelings, a feeling of fullness, In the recovery world, we call it a drug of choice, right? What's your drug of choice? Prisoners of the present. Focusing on experience, creating experience, having this good feeling. Their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame. In other words, rather than feeling guilty about the things in which they're short, they flaunt them. Rather than recognize how we fall short of God's glory, we flaunt how we fall short of God's glory. This is me and this is fun. Because their mind is set on earthly things. Their frontal is set for the here and now, for the feelings I get. But there's one more thing about what has already been accomplished that Paul grabs us with. Verse 20, but 
our citizenship is in heaven. We are already citizens of heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. I not only have the status of being a saint, I am already a citizen of heaven, which means I will one day be transformed to be like Jesus. Jesus didn't come down to earth to experience our pain and to give himself for us, not to finish his goal. He's going to make it happen. 1 John, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. We're now children of God. What it we will be like has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And those who have this hope in them purify themselves just as he is pure. So what Paul is saying is that rather than being prisoners of the past or prisoners of the present, to live in light of this Christmas paradigm is to allow ourselves to be prisoners of hope. A prisoner captivated by hope. That picture comes, by the way, from the prophet Zechariah who talked about the one who would come. And he says, because of that one, return to your fortresses, O prisoners of hope. Stop going out there and trying to fight everything that is against you that you think need, that you need to be who you really are. Return to your fortress and become a prisoner of hope. And what does that mean for me right now as I feel like life never goes up my way, like I'm never able to express my uniqueness, nobody values my uniqueness, and I'm overcome by those, nobody looks at me, nobody likes me, nobody lets me, nobody listens to me, frustrations that come from my me-centered front oh. It's not about focusing on my uniqueness. It's becoming in my uniqueness like Jesus, which means, well, yeah, I'll, I'll have to let go of some of those things that I, that I think are me and I think I can't change who I am because it's not about changing who I am. It's about becoming who I really am in Jesus. And yes, Jesus says that will mean you'll have to allow me to do some shaping and we'll feel squeezed by it, some painful sharpening. But because in you, you have the power of the resurrection life of Jesus, the like Jesus life, you can do it. But there's one more thing this passage tells us about how to live in, live out the game-changing truth of Christmas. Let's go back to our picture. So let's look at this picture like a coach doing player development, breaking down the play or, or the move that you're trying to work on, the process into its components, and think through, which one, which one of these do I need to focus on most? Look at this diagram again. If the unlimited God limited himself to become one of us so that he could draw us into his unlimited life and unending love, on what will I be drawing my focus wouldn't it be on the one who came 
who limited himself to come be part of me? Isn't that where I'd have my focus? Well, that's what Paul thinks. The way he puts it in our passage is that he says, my number one focus in order to achieve the goal that God has set for me to become like him is to simply know Jesus. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing value I get from knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Verse 10, I want to know him. Verse 20, I'm, I'm, I'm so much waiting for the time when I will fully be known so I can fully be like him. How do I grow? I, I just simply need to know Jesus more in everything and through everything. What, what do you do when you, when you have a growing love for someone? You want to be with them. And everyone can see it by the way you look at them. Every once in a while, in my generation, you'll hear this conversation. It'll go something like this. Hey, did are so-and-so an item? And the doofus they're talking to will say, I don't know, why do you ask? Well, I saw the way he was looking at her. I saw the way she looked back. I want to tell you there's something there, right? What Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into that glory with an ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You become by beholding, contemplating, dwelling on in your inner being. Here's another way of looking at that. You become what you love. And the flip side of that is what you become reveals, exposes what it is you really love. So what is it that keeps us from this Christmas unlimited invitation to know God fully through the one who, as God, has limited himself to bring me into his limitless life and unending love. Why, why would I not embrace this fully? Richard Halverson, who was a chaplain of the U.S. Senate for many years, talked about, put on the table one possible reason why we don't go there. Is it, he says, that we profess God when he is distant, transcendent, vague. In other words, we, we love this idea of God. But when he becomes close, relevant, and specific, we push him away. He goes on to ask, how is it possible to respect Jesus' virtual or virtuous life and yet reject his words when he said, I am God in the flesh. John says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds came from evil hearts. We don't want our hearts exposed. So what might be a sign that I am truly getting to know him? Well, look at verse 21 again who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. What does that tell me I might do if I really 
I really wanted to know him and fully entrust myself to him. Could it be that I would stop trying to get him to change everything around me for me and I would invite him to see how he's inviting me to be changed, to be more like him in all those things? Would that possibly be a sign that I would submit to the way he is trying to control everything to make me like him? Back to Romans 8, where it talks about being conformed. It doesn't say conforming ourselves to his image. We we would love it for it to say that it's our job to conform ourselves, because then we're in control of the timeline. Eh, We'll do it at our pace, and we're in control of the circumstances. Yeah, change the circumstance, and then I can. No, no. Spiritual formation is the great reversal of that from being the subject who controls all other things to being a person who is allowing ourselves to be shaped by the presence, the purpose, and the power of God in Jesus Christ in and through all things. Worship team servers, would you, would you come forward, communion servers? Today we get to participate in this wonderful ceremony called the Lord's Supper or Communion, a celebration of what? That the unlimited God limited himself to flesh and blood, became obedient to death, even death on a cross, to draw us, to woo us, empower us to be children of God, to enter into the sphere and experience of his unlimited life and his unending love. That is what this is about. It's an invitation to receive that, and it's a declaration that I want to press on and grow into that, to know him more, to become in in and from my inner being, transformed from being a limited, me-centered enemy of the cross to embracing the empowering love of Jesus to become like Jesus. There's that wonderful statement in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, which talks about this unlimited God limiting himself and coming to us it says, look, I'm standing at the door knocking. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. There's a, there's a little bit of a sign of whether we really have changed at the frontal level of our thinking by how we read this. Jesus doesn't knock at our door and invite us to ask him in so that he can get to know us. He knows you. He knows you fully. He knows you better than you know yourself. That is so me-centered to think that Jesus is coming in so he can get to know me. Jesus invites us to ask him in so I can get to know him experientially, fully. That's the heart of the Christmas game-changing frontal mindset. That's what Jesus is inviting us to take in and to give ourselves to 